Welcome to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. We look at revitalization in real time, examining the ups and downs of revitalizing and replanting historic and legacy churches throughout New England and the U.S. Now here's your hosts. Well, good morning again. Good morning. Come on, man, you guys have had your coffee by now, right? You get a little bit better of a good morning than that. Good morning. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) Much better. All right, so we're going to keep working in Romans. Um, I meant to add a prayer request. A childhood friend of mine, her dad passed away this week. Um, She's an only child. Her mom passed away from cancer a few years ago. So we traded messages on Facebook. And um, her name's Stacy. She just said she feels a bit uh, unmoored was the word she had. I guess, you know, being a fellow only child, that would be tough because you're like, you don't have the siblings, you don't have, like, like shit's kind of it. So, um, if you just remember to uh, uh, keep her in prayers. Her dad is a, was a good man of, of God. He was a, a national fire baseball uh, high school and in uh, college. And his, her dad was one of the main little league coaches. Never had any boys. He only had a daughter, so he just coached baseball probably to kind of be able to be around. And he was a good coach. And I'm telling Sarah a funny story that I won't, I won't share the whole thing all. Um, aspect of it, but he, he was always mild-tempered, you know, mild-mannered guy, never a big-tempered. I was umpiring one of his games with another guy who we had coached when we were younger, and he lost his cool, and we ended up having to throw him out. And he called me on the phone later that night, and was like, I just want to apologize for my behavior. It was like, Jamie was like, I don't know what happened to me, or anything like that. So, that's just always one of those, uh, one of the stories that, that uh, has, has uh, held a uh, has always stuck around. So the only reason I say that is we don't always know um, the impact of little actions that we take uh, and how they how they resonate with other people. But for me, that was I mean I was like 16 or 17, and you know, have a have a grown man who's the, the parent of one of my friends call apologize for his for his behavior to me it was really one of those things that um, kind of really stuck out for a long time and um, still does. So um, we're going to continue in Romans if you have your Bible. Um, it's in Romans chapter one. If you're uh, Using one of the few Bibles, let me just uh, continue with what Sam said about that. Is that um, if you need a Bible, want a Bible, just need another one, I don't know, whatever. These are, we, we have so many of these because they're designed for you to take home. So if you want a Bible, please take it home with you. If you're like, hey, maybe I'll come back to this church again, but I use a different translation, then just take one of them. That way you have the same translation that we, that we have. Okay, so it's page 883 if you're using a few Bibles. I did that. Doesn't do any good if I say what page is top of my Bible because, you know, they're, they're different. All right, so uh, really, it, it's a famous verse. Let's just read it. Um, and it, it's Paul speaking. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So remember, what we're kind of continuing on is what, we, what we've been in the last few weeks. Uh, last week, if you were here, if you watched online, uh, Paul talks about his, his how he felt compelled to preach the gospel. He says that, I am compelled to preach the gospel to, to the Jew and to the barbarian. And then so, or you know, in Greek, the barbarian, excuse me, would be anybody who speaks another language. And so now he goes here, he, he, he once again says that the gospel is for all people, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, so as, as we always do here, we're just going to walk through the verse. The first thing we see is that Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the very first thing that we can say is, do not be ashamed of the gospel. 
not be ashamed of the gospel. Right? We live in an era in culture where the only thing that we can say with any certainty is that we're not supposed to be able to say anything with certainty. Am I right? We live in a world where if there's anything objective, people want to push back and say that object objectivity doesn't exist. What people tend to miss is the irony of that thought process. Because if you're very sure that objectivity or a standard of truth that doesn't exist, you've just made a very objective statement. There's nothing subjective about that statement. So the problem then lies is already an issue with worldview. So we have to, I think we have to deconstruct, we have to take, we have to take a step back from that. Is that the idea of the exclusivity of Jesus in our pluralistic culture is offensive pretty much to everyone. Unfortunately, I would like to say, I wish I could even say it, it's offensive to those outside of the church, but unfortunately that's not even the case anymore. Is that there's many people inside the church, there's many people who claim to be Christians who are offended by the idea of the exclusivity of Christ. Which is an issue. I mean, it's, it's a very tenet of the Christian faith. Like we can't just, that's not, that's not we, get, we can't get around that, right? Jesus is very emphatic about that. The rest of the New Testament is very emphatic about that. God himself in the Old Testament is, is, is very like, worship me in the only. So we're kind of stuck in this, we're stuck making a decision when it comes to that, right? So, so Paul's saying is, don't be ashamed of the gospel. I think we have to define the gospel before we go any further. I think we hear it a lot. Maybe you hear the word gospel and you think, oh, it's the first four books of the Bible, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's part of it. Um, a couple weeks ago we talked about it. We said the word gospel actually means good news. This word is it's good news. If you went to Bible school, if you went to VBS as a kid, you probably sang a song. Gospel means good news. And I don't remember it. I didn't go to VBS when I was a kid. So. Sorry, but, but, but I've heard it. I've heard that song. Right? But it means good news. So if we're going to say, don't be ashamed of the gospel, don't be ashamed of the good news, what is the good news? What is it? So I think before we have to define what the good news is. And then we have to talk about why we're not ashamed of it, why it's important, why are all those kinds of, why is the rest of it? So let's, let's talk about what the gospel is. Right? First and foremost, sorry, I'm going to adjust my stand up here because you move your eyes sometimes in a low CD. So the gospel begins with God. I think that's what it, many times, if you have a church background, you're, you're going to be like, oh, man's a sinner. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. Because if we begin with man's a sinner, well, who does man sin against? What is the standard to which man sins, right? We, we, we've already, like, jumped ahead. Not only that, but then we make it man-centric. It makes it about us. Maybe we, we, we pop all of our bubbles real quick. The gospel is not about you and me. The gospel... The Bible is not about us. The Bible is not centered upon you and me. The Bible is centered upon the person of God. And it points us to Him, first and foremost, right? So let's take a step back. So the gospel begins with God. So we're going to say that, of course, in the beginning was God, and God is holy, and God is perfect, and God is just, and God is righteous, and God is loving, and God is, and is all these other things. We would have stopped there and go, well, that's great, right? Everybody goes to heaven. All dogs go to heaven, right? I would agree with dogs. Cats, of course, don't go to heaven. <laughs> a literal spawn of Satan. Um, you know, you're a dog or a cat person. I think I just answered that question. Um, 
But hey guys, listen, not, we, we, we want this idea to be true, that God forgives all people, and everybody says, well, he's going to a better place, so it's going to be okay. Maybe. Okay, so I'm already offending people. It's okay. But we're not always going to go there. Why? Because it, it, we have to see what that means, because ultimately God, yes, is holy. God is loving. God forgives. But he's also just. He's a just judge. The book of Romans goes on later and tells us that he is both just and justified. So you can't be a just God. You can't be, you can't be the, the, the justice personified, but you can't be justice and just let everybody go. I mean, sure, we love the idea what if one of our closest friends or relatives had, had killed somebody. We, we, we want mercy for them, don't we? We don't want them to, to spend forever in jail. What if they did something lesser? And we're like, well, that's not that big of a deal. That crime's not that big of a deal. Right? And we want mercy for them. But what if you're the victim? Or more so, what if your loved one's the victim? Do we want the judge just to throw them out? Oh, it's cool, don't worry about it. You know what? You don't have to serve any time in jail. You can go free. We would cry for justice. And rightfully so, the Bible teaches us that um, as, as human beings, we bear the nature of God. Therefore, we have a desire to see justice. Because God exacts justice. We also have a desire for mercy and graciousness. And so that becomes the case. We go, well, there's a duality there, right? God is both gracious and loving and kind, and he's just at the same time. So what happens? In a perfect world, you know, we, we, we see the comparison, he compares himself to father. So in a perfect world, we, we, he would be compared to a, a good earthly father who what? Would punish you when you do wrong. Not because your parents are mean or your parents are awful, or if you are a parent, you don't punish your children just simply out of anger. When you do so righteously, you do so what? That they might learn. You do this, this is the consequence. So ideally, you don't do it again. When I was a little, I, 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 we used to uh, play ball by the street because, you know, it's the 80s. That's what we did back then, unsupervised. No parents around. No, uh, no fight my kid on iPhone. No, like, leashes to hold your kids so they were only an arm's length. You know, your parents just threw you out of the house and were like, see ya, be back at some point, maybe. Unless you go to your friend's house and then you buy a wild meat and stay there. So we were playing ball on the street because, you know, that in the 80s, that's what you did. You just, like ball on the street because, you know, nobody's there to tell you not to. Um, except, this happened to be one of those times that the ball went out on the street, of course, as, as a smart little five-year-old, six-year-old, whatever, however it was. I would just chase the ball without looking. You know, cars, that whole thing. Um, and I, I, I'll never forget, I mean, hey, maybe this will offend some of you guys since you're all from the north, but I got a spanking, a pretty big one, on the side of the road. Like, you know, I'm just grabbing the thing like, and handle, handle business right there. But, but, you would guess how many more times I chased the ball on the road without looking both ways? It's not because I was scared of the car. That's what I should have been afraid of. No, because I was like, I don't want to get again. But ultimately, what? I learned my lesson. I was punished for chasing them all on the road. But I was like, whoa, no. Because it's bad. 
Well, see, God's the same way. We must be punished for what we do wrong. The Bible Spirit calls that sin. And I know that I'm ready for you. I really understand. But I'm not really a sinner, Eric. I don't kill people. I don't steal. I mean, I use my friend's Netflix password. You don't pay for it. That's not really stealing. I used to download stuff on LimeWire. That's not really stealing. If you didn't catch the LimeWire reference, you're lucky because you've not filled your family computer full of more viruses than you know what to do with. But that's the case, right? Is that we always want to be like, well, that guy's a sinner. And if I'm not that bad, then I'm pretty safe, right? I'm a good person. And so I get to go to heaven. Bible tells us that if we've committed one sin, then we're guilty of every sin. So one, so if we've committed one sin, we're condemned just like if we've broken every single law in the Bible. So what do I mean by that? That little white light you told, hey, does this look good on me? Oh yeah, that looks great on you. Boom, you sin. But if you're trying to save that person's feelings, surely they can't be, but you're not telling the truth. You're, you're not saving that person's feelings. You're saving your feelings because you don't have to tell them the truth. You'd rather let them go out and look foolish than correct them. See, there might be issues that ultimately all sin is based upon our selfishness. I can listen to things and I can play the gotcha game, but here's the deal. If we have ever committed any action, good or bad, that has not been designed to bring all glory and all honor to God by what we thought, said, and done, then we have sinned. Which is, there, 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 there's the gotcha, there's the catch. That, that's every single one of us, every single day. So, so now what becomes the issue? So what do we have? We have a perfect, holy God who is just, who is gracious, and then we have sinful people. So what does that mean? It means that God says, in order to be with me, you must be. In the Old Testament, what does he tell him? He says, be holy, for I am holy. There's a pretty hard line in the dirt there, isn't there? He doesn't say, strive, and try really hard to be holy, and you're going to be okay. What does he say? No, no, he says, be holy, because I am holy. So, so, so there's God's standard. God's standard is perfection and holiness. So if you want to be in heaven, that's his standard. Anything short of that, you and me are in trouble. I've been away since like a little before six, so I'm already in trouble. A lot of times over. I had to drive today, which basically already, like we must well just admit that uh, I'm already done this. I mean, I think I had a good day today. I think I only called two people morons this morning on my way into, into church, so, you know, progress, not perfection, right? Um, but that's the case, right? So if we've done anything short of perfection, short of holiness at all times, we're in trouble. So we're all in the same boat. So then what happens? Well, then God sends His Son, Jesus, to become human, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross. He raises again three days later. We celebrated this a couple weeks ago at Easter. And because of that, we may be forgiven of our sins. So that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God to forgive us of our sins through the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul saying, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be 
ashamed of that. Well, well why, I, would, I would even argue that Paul is proud of the gospel. I know, right? You don't, you don't hear the word proud. But, but he goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians, he says that if he, was, if he were to boast, he would boast in the Lord. And then he also goes on to say that he boasts in his weaknesses. So in 2 Corinthians. So what does that mean? What does it look like to boast in our weaknesses? How many of us revel in our weaknesses? We always want to put our best foot forward. You ever been on a first date? I mean, you ever sit down with someone on the first date and you're like, listen, I'm really hard to get along with. Like, I like to do things the right way, which just really means my way. And no, we don't do that. We, what do we do? We put our best foot forward. You ever go to a job interview and tell, and, and tell the absolute truth? Come on, nobody does that. What, what is your greatest weakness? Uh, I work too hard. I, I, I'm too conscientious. Come on, if I was honest, I'd be like an angry military veteran. I tend to get irritated at people very easily. I'm very sarcastic when I'm annoyed. Like, no, nobody says that on the first day. Nobody says that in a job interview. Why? Because you want to put your best foot forward. You don't boast in your weaknesses. Why? Because our culture's not designed that way. We're supposed to put our, a pull what we do best. We're supposed to put all of that out in front of us. But Paul says, no, no, that's not the case. He says, I boast in my weaknesses. Why? Why in the world would somebody boast in their weaknesses? Especially a guy like Paul. You were talking about somebody with a resume. I mean, God, Jesus himself was like, hey, Paul, you know what? I want you to go be an apostle now. After, well, and that's only his second resume. This is like, this is like, he has like two careers. His first one was a Hall of Fame career, right? He was like, listen, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I learned under the best teacher. I was from the best family. I, I worked the hardest. I was the most zealous. And then he comes to Christ, by the way, who Jesus goes to him personally, knocks him on his horse, blinds him, and is like, hey, come follow me. And I'm going to show you what you're going to have to suffer. And then what does he do? He goes on to find churches all over the known world, writes half the New Testament. Right? So if you're going to talk about somebody who's like, stellar resume, come on, man. I mean, like, that guy cannot be competed with. And that's how Paul's name induction was supported. I mean, Paul's the first ballot guy. Like, he's the first ballot, like, no brainer guy. Like, you're like, all right, so that guy's getting picked up the first time. So, I mean, that's the case, right? But what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, let me show you my resume. Actually, he doesn't look more Philippians. He says, hey, listen, you guys think you're great? Let me introduce you to my resume. It's better than all of yours. You know what I think it is? I think it's a big pile of dung. It's garbage. But what does he say? He doesn't say, I'll boast in what I've done well. He says, I will boast in my weaknesses. I will boast in the Lord. Why? Why in the world would he do that? Well, I would say it's because it is a constant reminder of his inability and his need for Jesus. Listen, if this guy, who from the outside looking in, has it all together, and he's like, I'm going to boast in the Lord, and I'm going to boast in my weaknesses, permission granted for you to do the same. Be recognized of how much we need Jesus. That's not popular to say, right? You know, we, we have the argument, well, it's, it's a crutch. It's a crutch. I, I don't, well, we're all weak. 
We've all dropped the ball. Maybe you think, no, I can take it. Has anybody let you down more than you? Has anybody lied to you more than you? Oh, we'll start tomorrow. Things are going to be better, I promise. I'm going to be better about spending my money. Right? Nobody lies to you more than you. Nobody trade wrecks your life better than you do. So when we say, well, religion, no, I mean, yeah, yeah. Jesus is what we depend upon. Why? Because we, because we need it. We need it. There's not one of us who does it well on our own. Gospel should remind us of our inability and our utter dependence upon Jesus. Those of you who are believers, that should be a reminder to you every day. Just knowing that we just need Jesus. That we are dependent upon Him. That we are enabled apart from Him. How would it transform our lives if we thought about our weaknesses more? And we thought about how Jesus loves us in spite of those. And if we thought about our inability on our own and our dependence upon Him, how much would it transform our relationship with Christ, knowing how desperately, how deeply we need Him? What about self-help and self-effort? You guys ever walk through like bookstores? You guys ever seen them? the section of self-help books? It is enormous. And it's also proof that they don't actually work. Guys, if self-help works, why do we have to keep writing new ones every year? I mean, really, if it actually worked, you should go to the right one and be done with it. But it doesn't work. Self, it's really more like self-destruction. The answer is not deep. The answer is deep inside of you. You wouldn't need help in the first place. I mean, really, right? If you can look inside and be like, oh, I can find the answer, then you, why would you need self-help anyways? You don't. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Do we strive? Do we work as we follow Jesus? Of course. But it's out of response to what He has done, not that we might earn His love and His favor. We, we, we respond, of course, Bob goes on to tell us that, that we're we're given the, the power, we're given the ability through the Holy Spirit to be able to follow Him, but that's not the case. We rest in Jesus and the work that He's done. The Gospel would have been, been met with much skepticism in Rome, just like it is in our day. I mean, think about it. If you ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus, or even if you've ever heard it, or seen it, or, seen it, or even know what the popular thoughts are, what are they? Oh, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. Uh, it's just something when I can and can't do. Right? I mean, there's plenty of other ones. Oh, there's got to be other ways. You can't just be Jesus. Or my favorites when they try to say that Christianity ripped off their ideas from other religions. That's absolutely not true. And that would be way more time than I want to spend this morning on that subject. But that's not the case. Is the idea is the gospel is hard because it is the opposite of everything that we are used to. Martin Luther says it really well. The gospel like, like flies against culture. Earning your salvation, working for it, feels normal. That feels right. I should have to work 
in order to be saved. I should have to be a good person in order to earn my way to heaven. And that's not the case. Actually, if we tried to do that, it would be the complete opposite of that. And when we as people choose to boast of our weaknesses and we choose to show the world, hey, listen, uh, my inability, I, Christians always share that. Well, I want to share the gospel with my friends. I want to talk to people about Jesus. But you don't understand. I, I screwed up. I, I messed up in front of them. I dropped the F bomb at work the other day. I've done, I'm, well, that should just, I mean, not that I'm saying you should go out and sin in order that you can share the gospel. Like, like, that, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you do so, when people call you out, absolutely. I absolutely am a sinner. You're right. And that's why I need Jesus. I'm not perfect. And I think that's a mistake that we fall into, this idea that we have to be perfect. Because if, if, if we can be perfect, if we can accomplish it on our own, then Jesus came and died for absolutely nothing. So why? We're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel displays the very power of God. The Greek word that's used here is the same word that we get the word dynamite and dynamic from. I want you to think about that for a second. The same root word for dynamite is the same root word for the gospel. There's no reason they pick words like that. I think it's probably pretty clear. I would, I would, I would say that it's clear because why? Because the gospel is dynamic. It is explosive. It is transformative. Anytime we preach the gospel, we truly preach the gospel, there will be conflict. People might not argue right back with us. There will be internal conflict. There will be people wrestling with it. But people will always struggle with the concept of the gospel. Why? Because they have to deal with their inability and the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus says, you can't do it on your own. You have to believe in me. Well, that's, and that's really hard for us. We're naturally rebellious people who want to do things our own way. So when we're confronted that with that, it's hard. It is hard for us to do that. How do I know? I mean, I mean it, 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 we get this weird thought, and I, I think there's a cultural aspect to it, and I think it pressures us at times, is that everything to do, whenever we talk about Jesus, whenever we share the gospel, it should end up with us holding hands, sitting in a circle and singing Kumbaya. Right? Like everybody gets along. You're happy, I'm happy, everybody's happy, right? Jesus doesn't say that. Look at Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Whoa! Well, that seems different, right? Well, let's keep going. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoa. So Jesus even says, Sharing the gospel, talking about me, is going to create conflict. It will divide people. Because Jesus himself says it. You believe in me or you don't. You're in or you're out. There's no in-between. How do I know? John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If your plan is to come to God on your own terms, or to find God through another avenue or any other way, that's not possible. Jesus himself says so. 
We have to make a decision on what it comes down to. The gospel displays the very power of God. I want you to think about it sometimes. At this great quote, I should have put up on the screen. It's this. Paul is unashamed as we should also be because the gospel is the dynamic, unharnessable power of God to affect salvation and all its temporal and eternal benefits. I want you to think about it for a second. It is the very power, harnessable power, unharnessable, excuse me, power of God. There's a, a great uh, evangelist just died recently, Luis Palau. Um, he used to, they, uh, the Christian radio station when he lived in Washington would play little snippets of it because he was just, he was down in Portland, he was really close. And um, I don't, I'll never forget this, he said he was challenged once. So an atheist in his life was, was arguing with him. He's like, he said, okay, he said, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I want you to find ten people who atheism has transformed their lives for the better. Just find ten. The guy couldn't. He said, well, I could find thousands, if not millions of people, that Christianity has changed their life, transformed their life. Think about this for a second. If that's the case, if, 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 we, if we were going to try to say that the gospel doesn't cause division, then why are there people who claim to be atheists, who claim to believe that God doesn't exist, who hate the idea of God so much? Why would you hate something you don't believe in? It doesn't make sense. Or, it's just a reminder of the very nature of their very power, the very uh, power of the gospel that from, from when it is shared to when it is spoken. Let me ask you a question. If you're a believer, this one, ask you a question. Have you ever experienced conflict in sharing the gospel? Have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus and, and, and experienced a pushback conflict with them? I'd say I probably experienced conflict more than I experienced anything else. You know, and it's also about how we handle it. You know, we're to be gracious, we're to be loving, we're to be kind. And of course, Paul said, you know, Paul goes on to tell us that we should always, oh, sorry, Peter goes on to tell us that we should always have an answer for the hope that we have. We should be studied and we should learn and we should understand our Bible and we might do our best to, to talk to people. But ultimately, what? The gospel is the unharnessable power of God. We have to trust the fact that God will transform and work in people's hearts. And I do like the quote that says, temporal and eternal benefits. Listen, I'm not going to say that there are no temporary benefits to believing in Jesus. There are. There absolutely are. My issue becomes there's too many churches are too concerned with the temporary benefits and they ignore the eternal benefits. You know, we, we get this weird idea, hey, if you love Jesus, if you believe in Him, if you give enough money, you, you can drive a nice car, you can have a big house, you, you, you can have a perfect marriage, you can have a boat, but I don't remember saying to that. Ultimately, our benefits are, are, are eternal. If you don't believe me, look, look at the look, look at the eleven surviving apostles. For ten of them, they, they met their they met their ends very violently. Torn off the temple, run through the sword, beat with clubs, crucified, crucified upside down, beheaded. I mean, even John John didn't die that way, but he was born alive and exiled to the island of Patmos. So it doesn't end necessarily well. These are guys who are closest to Jesus. It doesn't necessarily end well, but how do they suffer? How do they continue on? It's because it's the idea that the eternal outweighs the temporary. 
And that sure, maybe there are temporary benefits. Why? Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it, abund have it abundantly. We might have purpose in our life. We might have uh, re relief from stress. We might have uh, all, of these, all of these great temporary benefits. However, we can't forget about the eternal in favor of the temporary. So there's always peace at the end. Finally, the last thing I want to share is that the gospel saves all who believe. The gospel saves all who believe. Now, this is different. We have to understand a little bit about Judaism in order to understand where this goes. What does that mean? So, in Judaism, you would be considered part of the nation of Israel if you were born into it. If you were a young man, you'd have been circumcised on the eighth day. I know, I know, we don't like saying this in the C word as much as. But I was clear about that. And that you would be grafted into the nation of Israel. You don't even have to believe. You don't. You're just considered part of it. Even foreigners who join the nation of Israel would have to be circumcised and then they would be considered part of the nation. There's no faith, there's no belief needed in order to make that happen. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because now we get a difference. Do we, do we have, a, have a comparison for that? Anybody grow up somewhere where you're kind of just swept into your belief system from the time you were a baby, right? I know in, in the evangelical church we have kind of this idea of, well, I prayed a prayer, so I'm okay. I prayed a prayer, it's fine. I was dedicated. Listen, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get the baptism debate, but there are some places where, hey, I was baptized as a baby, so I'm all set. Which isn't a complete, you know, Lily Seven's dad's uh, Presbyterian, they baptize babies. Love them to death, I know he's a strong believer. And that's not what I'm talking about, it's the mindset of, well, it happened when I was a baby, so I'm all set now. I don't have to believe in anything, I don't want to go to church ever again, I got confirmed when I was six, I'm all set, right? That's dangerous. Because what? Because the Bible it shows us that there's no proof of our belief. There's a book we have. Uh, we have a little bookstore over there. That we just sell stuff at cost. There's one that says, "Quit asking Jesus in your heart." And the guy tells a story. I think I shared the story a couple weeks ago. The guy tells a story. He's playing basketball with a dude who's very crude, who swears the whole time. And he, so the author's like, he shares the gospel, and the guy's like, "It's okay. I don't you can't. I believe that. I prayed the prayer." And the guy's like, "Would you actually believe it?" He's like, "No, not really. But I know I prayed the prayer. So in case it is true, I'm fine." Unfortunately, I think that's what many of us believe about what happened to us when we were little. Why don't I actually have to act on my faith? Because why? Because I was baptized, I was confirmed, I was dedicated, I was, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I, whatever. Fill in the blank. But the issue becomes that it's not the response of what you have believed that it is lacking. Because look what he says, he doesn't say, for it is the power of salvation for all those who have been confirmed. For it is the power of salvation for all those who are baptized as infants. He is a, for it is the power of salvation for all those who walk an aisle, who pray their prayer. What does he say? It is the power of salvation for all who have believed. So the issue is you must believe in the gospel. You must place your faith in Christ. Your mom can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it. Your grandparents can't do it. Somebody once said it, is that God has no grandchildren. He only has children. 
Your faith doesn't come about from you because your parents believe. Or they did something on your benefit. Your faith comes because you believe. You must place your faith in Christ. Paul doesn't negate the importance of the Jewish people. When he, when he says this, he doesn't negate the others. Who, 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 who does the gospel come to first? The gospel comes to the nation of Israel first. And then goes out. He doesn't negate any of those kinds of things. But he also doesn't exclude the rest of the world. The gospel becomes available to all people who hear it. And it tells us how do we respond. How do we respond? Let me read the verse again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Gospels. For how do we respond? We respond by believing. What does it mean? It means that we put our full trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. The God who makes the ungodly right before Him. You could even argue that we put our full trust in the God who makes the ungodly godly. Who takes us and molds us and forms us to be more and more like Jesus every single day. Who are the ungodly, you ask? It's all of us. It's you, me. It's everybody. Every single one of us falls in the category of the ungodly. Is that we are born part. So I think so many times as we hear this in church and we hear the gospel and we go, oh, it's the gospel message. I must well check out, I'm already a Christian. We've already missed the point then. The gospel isn't for those who don't believe. The gospel is for all. First to the believer that we might be reminded of the great thing that Christ has accomplished. That we might be reminded of the graciousness. We might be reminded of our inability. We might be reminded of our very need for Jesus and for forgiveness. And for those who don't believe, it is a call to believe. It is a call to repent, to turn, and to trust Christ for our forgiveness. To trust Jesus that we might be forgiven, that we might be saved, that we might have salvation. So I would be remiss to not say something this morning. Let me ask you a question today. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? I don't care if you were baptized as a baby. I don't care if you were confirmed. I don't care if you walked an aisle in a Baptist church as a six-year-old and prayed a prayer and got baptized. I don't, I don't care about any of that. I don't, I'm not asking that. Have you placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins that you might know God? the answer is anything less of absolutely. If it's, well, I think I might have, or, you know, maybe, or absolutely not. Let me ask you, ask you a question this morning. What's keeping you from Jesus? What's keeping you from Jesus? 
stop you from placing your faith in him this morning. Even if there's anything that you can answer that to, I would love to have a conversation with you, whether this morning you can grab myself or, or, or Pastor Sam. Either one of us would be would, would, would love the chance to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to place your faith in Christ. You can set up a time to get with get together with us later in the week. If you want to have that conversation, if you're obviously if you're online, please go out the online form and reach out to us. But I would be remiss to not ask you what's keeping you from Jesus. If your response is absolutely nothing, I believe, then I would say, in a second here, we're going to pray. And I would challenge you. I would, I would tell you to respond by calling out to Jesus in repentance. I'm not going to lead you to prayer because I, I, don't, I don't see that in Scripture. But we definitely respond by praying. And just tell him, Jesus, I, I, I give my life to you. I don't know what that means. I, I forgive you my sins. I believe you. Just give, pray to him in your own words. And I would also say, please come talk to myself or Pastor Sam Why? that we might have a chance to talk to you about what that means and that we might help you and encourage you to grow your faith in Jesus because it's not just about, hey, listen, I prayed the prayer, I'm all better, I believe in Jesus. No, it's about the fact that we have an opportunity to live the rest of our worldly life, the rest of our life here on this earth, that we might love, serve, and follow Jesus as a practice for what is to come for all of eternity, when we will spend the rest of eternity loving, serving, and worshiping Jesus. And we have an opportunity to do that as a gathered church to encourage one another to do so. So I'm going to pray for us. And again, like I said, if you were visiting with us, if you are responding to to, to believe in Jesus this morning, please call out one of those cards. Come grab Pastor Sam or myself. We would love to talk to you. We're going to have communion. We're going to sing and all of those things. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Thank you that we can know where we stand with you eternally, by, by believing you, by placing our faith in you, by trusting in you. Lord, I thank you that you provide your word for us that we can see this. We thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to be here, to gather the worship. Lord, I pray for all of us who are here this morning. I pray for people who are online. God, I pray that we would respond to the gospel. For those of us who know you, God, that we would just be reminded of how good you are and how glorious the gospel is and what it has done for us. And then we can be reminded of our inability and your provision for that. Lord, I pray that anybody who doesn't know you, God, that they would respond or that you would draw them to you that they would respond by, by repenting and believing. Lord, thank you that you provided a way for us.